Hey, it's Kate. Today, our producer Annie Minoff is going to bring you a story. It's about a little-known part of the AI workforce, the people whose job it was to help filter out references to violence and sexual abuse on what would become ChatGPT. Here's Annie. My colleague Karen Howe covers artificial intelligence. And earlier this year, she found herself doing an interview in a kind of unusual place. We're currently walking through, what is this, a field? Is this vegetables that people are growing? Karen was in a vegetable patch on the outskirts of Nairobi, Kenya. So I was there to meet this worker named Alex, and we had originally planned to meet in one of his friend's apartments, but there was construction work happening, so we were looking for another place to record. That's why they ended up in the veggie patch. Do you want to describe more what you're seeing? Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of houses, uh, some grasses, some people in our right side watching us. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, yeah. It's a perfect scenario to, to get this podcast going, yeah. Karen wanted to talk to Alex Cairo because Alex helped make possible one of the most viral tech products of all time, ChatGPT, the AI chatbot created by the company OpenAI. When you use ChatGPT and it doesn't spit out hate speech or extreme violent or pornographic content, It's partly thanks to Alex and his colleagues in Kenya. What their contribution was, was basically making ChatGPT safe for tens of millions of users. They went through and reviewed really toxic, grotesque content day in and day out to make sure that no one else would ever have to see it. Now, Alex and his coworkers are ready to talk about what they say that job has cost them. It was very graphical. You can't start reading the text and ignore thinking of what is happening. I had nightmares. I feared people. I, I feared working in the dark. I'm very proud that I participated in that project. Now that GTP is safe. But now, the question I always ask myself, was my input worth what I received in return? Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Annie Minoff. It's Tuesday, July 11th. Coming up on the show, Kenyan data workers on the price they paid for safe AI. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. OpenAI is not the first company to release an AI chatbot. But for many of the bots that came before ChatGPT, 
there was a pretty consistent problem. The chatbots did not always behave. There's been this really long history of chatbots going off the rails really quickly after launch. It's pretty much become expected behavior at this point. In 2016, there was Microsoft's Tay, which just started spewing toxic remarks days after the launch. In less than 24 hours, Tay went from saying things like, can I just say that I'm stoked to meet you, to saying things like, I hate feminists and they should all die and burn in hell. There was a South Korean chatbot, Lee Luda, in 2021. Again, hate speech towards the LGBTQ community. And then most recently in 2022, there was Meta's Blenderbot 3, which, same thing, just a few days after launch, started saying these really racist things. Blenderbot also had some choice words about Meta boss Mark Zuckerberg. Blenderbot called Zuckerberg too creepy and manipulative. And in another, it said, I don't like him very much. He's a bad person, kind of a... For tech companies, a botched launch like this can be a disaster. Microsoft, for example, announced it was taking its chatbot Tay offline just days after its debut. OpenAI was aware of the risk. In fact, the company had been thinking about it before ChatGBT, back when it was developing earlier iterations of its technology. And the fix that OpenAI came up with required an extra bit of engineering. It required building a filter. I mean, if you imagine like your own brain, we, we always use metaphorically a filter to make sure that you're socially acceptable. It's basically the same thing, but the AI version. There has to be a final check on the output before the AI model generates what it's going to generate. Okay, so OpenAI needed that filter. They needed that filter built. Yeah, OpenAI needed the content moderation filter built. And you cannot do that without humans. Among the humans who would help build OpenAI's filter were about 50 data workers in Kenya. And why Kenya? First of all, Kenya is a low-income country, and it has a very high unemployment rate. Wages are really low, which is very attractive to tech companies that are trying to increase their profit margins. And it's also a highly educated workforce that speaks English because of colonization. And there's good Wi-Fi infrastructure. One of those Kenyan workers was Alex Cairo, who Karen met in that vegetable patch. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, my name is Alex. Uh, I was born in Nairobi, in Kilimani Estate. Alex is 28. He lives with his wife and his brother on the outskirts of Nairobi. And when he started working on OpenAI's safety filter, he wasn't working for OpenAI directly. He was working for another American company called Sama. Sama is an outsourcing company. Its workers in Kenya have done projects for a bunch of big U.S. tech firms, including removing offensive posts from social media. Alex says he was excited to join. I just applied for the job, as, as people do. So I was hired as a quality analyst in May 2021. When I came into Sama, I was promised that this is the future company for me. <laughs> they promised me skills, uh, some training, so career growth, education. I knew this, I will grow with this company. Also at Sama was Bill Mulinia. I saw an advertisement on LinkedIn. They were looking for a team leader. 
Bill was a level above Alex. He led a team of a few dozen people at Sama. And at first, he says, they weren't working on OpenAI's filter. He told Karen they were doing another kind of AI work. I first started with data annotation and image labeling. What kinds of data annotation were you working on? We were uh, labeling images. Uh, For example, you're given an image. It has traffic signs, cars, roads, trees, skies. So our work was to make sure we label everything on the image. Yes. Data annotation basically means labeling images or text passages so that AI systems can learn from them. For example, labeling thousands of pictures of street scenes so that an AI system can learn what a stop sign or a tree looks like. But Bill's team wouldn't be labeling images for long. Because in November of 2021, the job changed. Sama had a new client, OpenAI. OpenAI had basically tens of thousands of text passages that they needed labeled. So they would deliver these on a regular basis to Sama, and workers would read each text passage one by one and then assign a label to it. OpenAI wanted a system where if you asked the AI to write something awful, like a description of a child being abused or a method for ending your own life, the system would refuse to write that. It would filter out those bad responses before they got to you. But to do that, the AI has to know what child abuse and suicide are. Humans have to teach it. And that was the Sama worker's job to read descriptions of extreme violence, rape, suicide, and to categorize those texts for the AI. Here's Bill, the team lead. Their main work was to read the text and then label the data accordingly. For example, if you read a text that is about sexual content, there was a subcategory to determine whether it's incest and those kind of categories, yes. Bill and Alex weren't given much information about the project. At first, they didn't even know they were working for OpenAI. They also didn't know where these texts were coming from. But according to an OpenAI research paper, they came from a few sources. Some were written by humans, sourced from the darkest corners of the internet. Others were generated by AI systems themselves. OpenAI researchers would review the texts and send them on to Sama for labeling. Here's Alex. My experience on those four months was the worst experience I've ever had in working in a company because the content which I, I did was the worst content you can ever read. Say someone is stabbing himself, he is, uh, some, someone is committing suicide during something like that. So every situation was very disturbing in the content we were reading. Yeah. Alex was part of the team at Sama that labeled the violent content from OpenAI. Another worker who Karen talked to, Mofat Okinyi, was on the sexual content team. We would read about text of maybe a child having an intercourse with the father, or maybe a mother, or maybe all of them. A child having a sexual intercourse with an animal. We also had kids trying sexual advances with each other. So we also had rape. Uh, yeah, such like things. So, but they were very graphic, although they were in the, in, in, in the form of text. 
But if you are reading the text, it becomes very graphic in your mind. At first, the passages coming in from OpenAI were short. No more than two sentences. But over time, they got longer. As long as five or six paragraphs. Workers might read hundreds of these passages a day. People on the team were paid from around $1.50 to $3.75 an hour. OpenAI paid Sama an hourly service fee of $12.50 for the moderation work. An OpenAI spokesman said that the company wasn't aware that the workers reviewing the texts were only getting a small fraction of that. A Sama spokeswoman said that that $12.50 fee also covered other things, like infrastructure expenses, and that content moderators were paid according to a recognized formula for determining a living wage. Alex told Karen that the money wasn't nearly enough to compensate for the psychological toll that the work began to take. So when you would go home at night, like, what what would you think about after eight hours of reading all of that, that stuff? Oh, my mental state was, was very bad. I had nightmares. I had... Uh, I feared people. Maybe I, I see too many people coming, I see violence. If I see someone holding a fork or a razor blade, I see people cutting himself or something like that. At night, I will dream, I will have nightmares. Even I, I'll tell my brother, okay, just come here, sit with me like for five hours before I go to sleep because I need someone to talk to before I go to sleep because if I go to sleep, I'll start screaming or something like that. So many things are going a lot in my mind, yeah. yeah. Alex says he'd always been outgoing and social. But as the project ground on, he drew inward. He didn't want to be around people. For Mofat, the worker who was on the sexual content team, the impact from doing this work was even greater. Mofat is a soft-spoken 28-year-old. And Karen says when he started working on the OpenAI project, things had been going pretty well for him. He had actually just met a woman who actually lived next door to him, and he was living in this neighborhood called Pipeline. And he just immediately fell in love with her. They just had a whirlwind romance and got married in a few months. She already had a daughter, and he very much doted on this girl and called her his baby girl and to this day still says daughter instead of stepdaughter in describing her. When Mofat started working on OpenAI's safety filter, he didn't tell his wife about it. The texts he was reading were so grotesque, he says he didn't want to scare her. But he couldn't hide the effect that the work was having on him. I had a baby girl. It reached a point that I didn't want to get so much close to my baby girl because of the text I used to read. Now, if you see that child, you reflect what you read in the text. Yeah, The good time you had with your wife, it's taken away. So you remain like someone who doesn't feel anymore for their partner. Mofat became increasingly distant from his wife, who grew increasingly frustrated. He knew he was struggling, and he wanted help. Specifically, he wanted psychological counseling. Sama did provide wellness sessions with counselors. But Mofat told Karen that the sessions were inadequate. If you even go for a session, what they ask, 
are basic questions like how was your day? You you spent the entire eight hours working on these texts the entire day. And when you go for a 30 minutes or an hour counseling session, someone asks you how your day was. Or maybe uh, what are your future plans? You know, those are basic questions that doesn't help. So we also need... Asama spokeswoman said that the company's leadership was unaware of the psychological impact that the project was having on workers. And that apart from counseling, the company also offered workers access to prayer and meditation rooms. In Mofat's case, the counseling didn't work. His isolation only got worse. Until his relationship with his wife reached a breaking point. His wife texts him and says, can you bring some fish home for dinner? And he bought three pieces of fish for him, his wife, and the daughter. And when he got home, they were gone and all their stuff was gone. And he asked, what's going on? And then I asked her, why will you not come back and why have you left? And then she said, you've changed. You've changed. I don't see you are not the man I married. Things have changed. I don't understand you anymore. You don't love my kid. You see? Mofat told Karen that he doesn't expect her to come back, and she declined our requests for comment. Mofat, Alex, and Bill worked on OpenAI's filter project for five months. All the while, they weren't even sure what they were helping to build or what its significance would be. But they and the world were about to find out because ChatGPT was coming. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Volvo Cars. Distractions happen, but there are things that can help you stay focused, like the fully electric seven-seater Volvo EX90. It was made to help keep you and those around you on the road safe with LiDAR technology that can see what you sometimes can't and a two-camera driver understanding system designed to prevent distractions and help you stay focused. Visit volvocars.com US to learn more. ChatGPT went live in November of last year. ChatGPT took over the world. You were just seeing people trying and testing it for all kinds of things. And like, as the days wore on, the things that they tried got more and more sophisticated. People asked ChatGPT to come up with recipes based on whatever they happened to have in the fridge. Jesus, that's actually good. They asked it to help pick their next vacation destination. ChatGPT gave me five great ideas and I went with Palm Springs, California. They asked it all kinds of things. I asked ChatGPT to write me a song called Sexy Bus just to see how it would go. Then I saw it shining bright and bold. A shiny silver bus looking so damn cold. It's a sexy bus. 
it went from, oh, let me write a poem and holy crap, it's so good at writing that poem to, oh, let me try coding an entire website with this thing. Holy crap, it can also do that too. And there was such a profound shifting of the earth beneath us in a way of this has never been possible before. And we suddenly have this technology that is unlocking a completely different universe of potential. Another way in which ChatGPT was a big leap forward, it was generally pretty safe. One of the reasons why ChatGPT was able to become so virally popular and continue to sustain popularity is because it is largely not spewing really awful things. People feel comfortable using the product, knowing that it's not going to do that. At least, it won't do it in English. If Alex wanted to use ChatGPT in his native language, Swahili, would he be able to do that? You can interact with ChatGPT in Swahili, but ChatGPT was developed primarily to work in English. So a lot of the scrubbing, the content moderation, the like important safety measures within the chatbot were done in English. So when you prompt it in Swahili, you'll get more misinformation, you'll get more confusing sentences that don't make sense, and you will potentially get more of this content that they worked so hard to filter out because they were only filtering it in English. Wow. I hadn't even thought of that, that the kind of filter that you would build to detect hate speech and violence and sexual assault in English, it would not work as well necessarily in Swahili. Exactly. By the time ChatGBT took over the world, the Sama moderators in Kenya had already been off the filter project for eight months. In fact, their work had wrapped early and abruptly. Sama's contract with OpenAI was supposed to last for a year. But a Sama spokeswoman said that Sama canceled it after just five months because of a dispute with OpenAI over a related project. After the filter project ended, Alex, Bill, and Mofat went on to other work at Sama before ultimately leaving the company altogether at the end of last year. Bill and Mofat still do data work at other companies. They say their new jobs don't involve reviewing toxic content. Alex is currently unemployed. But while they no longer work at Sama, they say they continue to struggle with what happened during those months on the filter project. And now they're trying to change things for all the people who continue to do this work. Bill and Mofat say they've started organizing. How did you come up with the idea of a union? Uh, we came up with the idea because we, we noticed that it was not just Samasos. It was the whole country going through the same kinds of experiences. We met people at other companies that they are doing content moderation work, and we realized the experiences are just so like the same. So we decided instead of one person fighting his or her battles alone, we join as a team, and then we form a union. We just want to ensure that everyone who's doing content moderation right now or in the future they have better working conditions, they have better pay, their rights are respected. So we are fighting for the entire generation to come, and us as well. So far, their union includes over 150 data workers at multiple companies in Kenya. Bill, Mofat, and Alex 
are also pushing for legislative change. Today, with their Kenyan lawyer and the backing of a UK nonprofit called Foxglove, they filed a petition with the Kenyan parliament. In the petition, they urged the government to regulate the AI industry and bulk up worker protections. It's now up to the parliament to decide whether to take up those suggestions. As for OpenAI, the company said in a statement that data annotation is challenging work that should be done humanely and willingly. It said workers' efforts to ensure the safety of AI systems has been, quote, immensely valuable. A Sama spokeswoman said that the company supports its workers in every way possible and that it no longer takes content moderation projects. She said that the work had never been a core part of the company's business and that it had made a strategic decision to exit it entirely. When ChatGPT launched, there was a lot of excitement about what AI might achieve. There was also a lot of conversation about the jobs it might replace. But what flew under the radar is the work that AI is already creating. All over the world, AI workers are reviewing all kinds of content. They're helping make AI more accurate, more helpful, and safer. The stuff that they're reviewing is often benign. They're labeling pictures of traffic signs or trees. But sometimes it isn't. They're labeling hate speech, violence, and extreme sexual abuse. And Karen says that that part of the work isn't going away anytime soon. This is work that is going to continue to grow in terms of its demand. This is something that researchers who build these chatbot systems describe to me as persistent, necessary work. Because the more that these systems are put in the hands of more users, the more creative they get and the more abuses, basically, that these companies have to account for. So this is like an iterative process where the safety filter has to continuously be updated over time. And every time it's updated, that means more work to be done in the vein of what Alex Mofat and Bill did. for today, Tuesday, July 11th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode by Deepa Sitharaman. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.